Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Happy Easter. Christ is risen. He is risen. It's good to be with you guys and to celebrate with you. Uh, We're joining billions and billions of people uh, throughout the world and throughout history by gathering today to celebrate Jesus, to delight in Jesus, to make much of Jesus, who happens to be the most influential person the most influential human to ever walk the earth. More books have been written about him, more songs have been sung to him than anyone else. No one's been more loved than him. No one's been more hated than him. And we literally split history by his life, B.C., before Christ, and A.D., the Latin Anno Domini, which means the year of our Lord. It's no wonder that the historian and writer H.G. Wells once confessed, I am an historian, I'm not a believer. But I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all history. So what is it that sets Jesus apart? What sets him apart from from all the others? Is it his teaching? There's been been a lot of great teachers throughout history, philosophers, uh, theologians. Was it his, his miracles? Uh, was it his, his gruesome death that he's famous for on the cross? Even more than that, what sets Jesus apart? Because many other men have been teachers. Many other men have performed miracles. Many other men have died gruesome deaths. But what sets Jesus apart is the resurrection. What sets Jesus apart is the resurrection. Because the resurrection confirms... All that he is, all that he did, all that he claimed to be as the son of God. Everything he is to us rises or falls on the resurrection. Without the resurrection, Christianity offers no hope. If Jesus didn't rise from the grave, if he didn't walk from the tomb, then billions upon billions of people throughout history who call themselves disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus, are nothing more than just gullible fools. 
because they place their eternal hope in a dead corpse rather than the risen Christ. That's not just my assessment. That's actually what the Bible says. That's actually in the scriptures. The apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile. He's inviting his readers to actually look into the resurrection. He actually names some eyewitnesses that the people at this church in Corinth can look up. You see, a lot of people think that like in order to believe in Christianity, in order to believe any world religion, but especially Christianity, you need to sort of check your mind at the door. But when you read the scriptures, the writers of the scripture encourage you to use reason. Encourage you to come with your skepticisms, to come with your doubts, and to come with your longings to find that Jesus satisfies the deepest longings of our souls. You see, on the other hand, if the resurrection is true, if the resurrection is true, and in a moment we'll, we'll see that it gloriously is, then that would change everything then that would change everything. There's a man named Viktor Frankl. He was a Jewish psychiatrist who was captured by the Nazis during World War II, and, and he was sent to, to work out in these, in these work camps. And he couldn't let go of his work as a psychiatrist while he was laboring in these concentration camps. And so he would sort of study his fellow prisoners. And in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, which they made a lot of us read in high school, he, he says that he observed something fascinating while he was in the work camps. He said that under intense pressure, pain, and suffering, there was a group of people like who, who lost all hope under that pressure. And those that lost all hope, that lost all purpose for living, they're usually the ones that died sooner than the rest. And he says there's this, this second group uh, to where they they found some hope in this, like some future that they contrived in, in their minds, some future that they imagined, like, hey, maybe one day I'll be home again. Maybe one day I'll, I'll be with my love again. Maybe one day I'll finally get to visit that town I've always wanted to go to. And he says those people that had a hope to hang on to, they lasted longer. But a lot of those people, they started getting overcome with anxiety with worry, like, what if my loved one's not there when I get out? What if my home is burned to the ground? What if I never get out of here? And then they start to get anxious and they start to turn on each other because it's like, if no one's going to look out for me, then I'll look out for me. And so they started taking from one another. But then Frankl says there's a third group, a smaller group, who had a deep and lasting hope. They had an inner strength and freedom that wasn't dependent on their circumstances, wasn't dependent on any potential circumstances. He concluded, he wrote in this book, he said, life only has meaning in any circumstances if we have a hope that neither suffering, circumstances, nor death itself can destroy. That kind of hope, that's real hope. That kind of hope, that's lasting hope, Frankl says. <clears throat> so how, how do we find that hope? Where can we find the truest kind of, of, of that hope? 
We're going to walk now through Mark chapter 16 to look at the deep hope the resurrection brings. So if you brought a Bible with you this morning, go ahead and turn to Mark 16. If you don't have one, uh, we'll have the text up on the screen for you. And we also have a stack of Bibles out at the Connect table that we'd love to send you home with, with one or two if you, don't, if you don't have one. So Mark 16, here's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at first how the resurrection gives us a hope that surprises us. Secondly, how the resurrection gives us a hope that saves us. And thirdly and lastly, we're going to look at how the resurrection gives us a hope that, that sends us. So let's look at that first one, a hope that surprises us. A hope that surprises us. Now, at this point, Mark 16 is the last chapter in the Gospel of Mark. And so at this point, Jesus has already been arrested. He's already been killed. He's already been buried. And we pick up here in Mark 16, verse 1. Read it with me. It says, Then when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome, they bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And then very early on, the first day of the week, which is Sunday, when the sun had risen, no pun intended, they went to the tomb. So you've got this group of women, these women disciples of Jesus. They come bringing spices to anoint what they believe to be the dead body of Jesus. On Sunday morning, when the sun is risen, they went to the tomb. Now, here's what I want you to notice. It's crystal clear here in this text that nobody, nobody here in Mark 16 is expecting an actual resurrection. No one's expecting a resurrection. Like, do you notice how weird this scene is? Like, in light of the fact that Jesus told his disciples that if you, if you destroy his body, he would, he would raise it uh, three days later over and over again. He told his disciples that over and over and over again. Like, you'd expect everyone to be outside the tomb, lined up on the lawn with their chairs and their coolers on the hillside. Like RSM Lake on the 4th of July, people put their blankets out a few days before just to save their spots on the lawn for fireworks, all right? For fireworks. We're talking more than fireworks here. We're talking the Lord rising from the grave. And he told them this would happen. And so you'd expect them to come back on the third day from his death on the cross, waiting outside his tomb. The, the, the end of verse 15 says that these women, they, they saw where, where he was buried. And so you'd expect them to tell the other disciples for there to be this, this, this whole welcome wagon would be out there if they took Jesus for his word. But what do we see instead? All his closest friends, his main disciples, his 12 disciples, and the crowd that followed him, they're gone. They've either betrayed him or they've abandoned him. And they're gone and they're mourning his death at this moment. These three women, they brought spices and perfumes to anoint his dead body, which is an old custom they did, partly out of reverence, but partly because you don't want a dead body to stink. And in, that, and in, that, uh, in the first century Near East, people would visit the tomb like throughout the, that, the first year of that person's death. And these, these, these spices and perfumes are super expensive. 
So they paid some solid coin to wake up early on a Sunday, buy these spices, and bring them to the tomb. It's clear they expected him to stay dead. All his talk about resurrection, they just thought it was another one of his parables, another one of his sayings. And here's the point. The resurrection of Jesus was unimaginable. Not just to us, but to those in the first century. Even to his closest disciples, the resurrection was unimaginable. We could say it was surprising in the truest sense of that word. It was impossible for them to believe until they actually saw it. It helps, us, it helps for us to know that Jesus wasn't, he wasn't the only dude in Israel at this time who claimed to be the Savior King of the Jews. There were dozens and dozens of messianic movements leading up to this time. Most of those guys that led those movements were executed by the Roman government. They were either burned at the stake or they were crucified just like Jesus. And all of those movements, they all dissolved after that leader died, which makes sense, right? Guy claims to be the Messiah, then he dies, stays dead, everyone calls it a day, right? Except the movement around Messiah Jesus. Except the movement around Jesus, the Christ. His is the only messianic movement that survived. And it didn't just survive, it exploded. It grew from 25,000 followers in the first two decades to 25 million in the first two centuries, all while being illegal in the Roman Empire. That is nuts. That's wild. And the world has never been the same since. His resurrection, his teaching and resurrection had such an impact for the rest of history. Christianity brought new leaves about death and the afterlife, but it also gave the world new beliefs on how to live in the here and now. Christian worldview is what brought us the idea of human rights, loving your neighbor and your enemy, honoring the dignity in others, all things that we enjoy and take for granted day to day here in the West, but they're all based on the teachings of Jesus and the implications of the resurrection. The world has literally never been the same since this day. There has always been, there's always been skeptics of the resurrection, even today. I mean, people can't deny the historic impact of the resurrection but they do deny that it really happened. That they say that it's, it's legend because it's so surprising, it's so unimaginable, it's so inconceivable, and it demands a response from us. As Jesus rose from the grave, the man who claimed to be God's son, and walk, walked from his tomb, and that demands a response for that, and so people choose to reject it. There's one theory, there's tons of them, but, but some of the more popular ones, there's one theory that Jesus tricked his disciples by hiring a stunt double who switched places with him at the cross. Now, there's some problems with that, right? Like, first of all, like, what stunt man's going to sign up for that? Secondly, you know who was at the foot of the cross when he died? The Gospel of John tells us. His close friend, John, and his own mother. You know who you can't fool? You can't fool your close friends, and you especially can't fool your mom, right? You can't fool your mom. Like, 
I may or may not have learned that lesson the hard way as a teenager. By the way, after the resurrection, Jesus' mom worshipped him as God. His half-brother James worshipped him as God. He planted a church. He wrote the book of James. He eventually went to his death because he wouldn't recant of his belief of his half-brother Jesus being the son of God, the risen son of God. I mean, his own mother worshipped him after the resurrection. Like anyone who's changed your diaper and wiped your boogers is not going to worship you as God unless they see the kind of earth-shattering evidence that comes with the resurrection. These are historical people, historical witnesses. You don't just read about James, the half-brother of Jesus, in the scriptures. You read about him in history. Went to his death because he would not recant from his belief that Jesus was the risen Son of God. There's also the more popular swoon theory. Muslim scholars tend to believe to, to write about this one. They, they say that Jesus didn't really die. He sort of just passed out, and they made like an oops mistake and thought he was dead, right? Uh, Christian, Christian science monitor people uh, like, believe this too, Christian scientists, which, which, by the way, is not a Christian nor science, right? Like they don't, they don't believe in Christianity, and they don't for sure believe in science. Um, it's, like, uh, it's like that Jerry Seinfeld joke, grape nuts, right? Like, who decided to name grape nuts grape nuts? Like, you open the box, there's no grape, there's no nuts, right? But that's Christian science. Like, the Christian scientists, the Muslims, they believe in the swoon theory, the most popular proponents of the swoon theory. They believe that Jesus didn't really die. He just sort of, like, passed out. But let's look over to the, the facts again, right? Jesus was beaten. He was blinded and beaten and bruised by a mob. He was flogged where they'd rip his back to this bloody pulp, reduce him to just this bloody piece of meat. Many men died just from that. And then they made him carry a 100-pound crossbar, wooden crossbar, on his already thrashed body until he fell over and someone else had to take it the rest of the way. And then they took these five to seven-inch spikes and hammered them, hammered them into his hands and his feet. A professional executioner, a centurion, confirmed that he saw Jesus breathe his last breath. And just to make sure, another executioner punctures Jesus' side up into his heart sack so that blood and water flow out. Gruesome. Look at the symptoms there. I mean... No breathing, no pulse. His heart is literally torn. I mean, most doctors would call it at that point. Most doctors would agree there's no backup plan at that point. He's dead. Some say maybe the disciples made the whole resurrection story up, right? And maybe they made the whole thing up. Like, could it be made up, though? Like, if that was the case, they wouldn't have recorded themselves in the Gospels as complete cowards and then try and start a movement with those writings. They were cowards who abandoned Jesus in his most trying hour. History tells us that each of these disciples, every single one of them, was killed and martyred for their faith in the resurrection, with the exception of, of the Apostle John, who they, 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 they basically tried to boil him in water. And he survived. And so they're like, we don't know what to do with this guy. So they put him away to an island in exile for the rest of his life. These guys went through all of that. 
because they would not recant. They would not take back their words saying, saying, claiming, confessing that they saw the risen Jesus. Rarely will someone die for what they believe, but even more rare is someone who dies for what they don't believe. These are a group of guys that, again, you can read in history. You don't just read about them in the Bible. You have historians in the first and second century writing about these men in the churches that, that they planted. This strange Christianity movement that emerged in, in the first century. You want to know how these disciples went from lazy cowards to resilient heroes in the early church? What it was that got them all yoked up and ready to roll, risking their lives in church planting when just a day earlier they were total cowards? It's because they saw something that changed them. They saw something that changed everything. That made them view their, their lives and the ways that they were living them previously as, as, as meaningless and worthless, and they wanted to give themselves to the cause of Jesus. They saw something that changed them. You want to guess what that was? You see, the only reasonable explanation is that the resurrection really happened. The resurrection really happened. It surprised the disciples. They're surprised in this text. They're not expecting it. It surprised them, and it changed everything. They gained a spiritual strength and hope that no amount of hurt, no amount of suffering, no amount of torment, or even death could take away. Adrian Warnock, a retired pastor and doctor living in London right now, he wrote, the church did not create the resurrection stories. The resurrection stories created the church. You see, if Jesus never rose, like Paul said, our faith is futile. We're wasting our time. If Jesus never rose, and Christianity would have been put to rest before the first century. But because Jesus did rise, Christianity lives. It surprised them with a hope unimaginable, and it changed everything. It changed everything. That leads us into our second point. It gives us the resurrection gives us a hope that saves us. A hope that saves us. Read, read verse three with me now in Mark 16. It says, "And they, the three women, they were saying to one another, "Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb?" Pretty heaven stone. They forgot to think about that one. Verse 4. And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And we talked about this last week in our series in the Gospel of Mark, but basically this, these tombs that they would place people in were about the size of a large walking closet. So to have a super short, uh, like hobbit-sized door that you'd have to crawl into, but once you get inside, you can stand up. And then there's this chamber where you can kind of get your spices and your linen cloths and all that like situated. And then there's this like elevated slab, uh, usually on the right or on the left, where they would actually place the dead body. And people would come in and visit somebody after they died who was laid in a tomb. They'd come and visit uh, the tomb. They, 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 they'd crawl inside and, and, and they'd, uh, you know, pay their respects like that. Every tomb, when there weren't visitors there, they would roll a large stone to cover the entrance. It was a large circular disc, usually around six feet high, 
And this circular disc that covered the hole was usually on, on, a, downward, uh, on, on, on a downward hill, so it was easier to close it than it was to open it. That's why you normally had like two, uh, two guards standing outside, uh, uh, strong, uh, soldierly men who would help move that rock in and out of place for visitors. That's the scene when it says they saw the stone had been rolled back and it was very large. Now to us, when we read this, we're pumped, right? If you're a follower of Jesus and you read this, we're pumped. We're like, yes, this is the moment. This is what he was talking about. He is risen. That's what we say. We say, yes, like that's, this is the moment. They realize now they're going to see he is risen. But these women... That's not them. You got to remember, they're not expecting this. They're not expecting Jesus to have actually rised. They're upset. They're mourning. They're all out of sorts. And so when they walk up to this tomb, the tomb and see that the stone has already been rolled back, that's like walking up to your dead friend's grave and seeing that someone else dug it up. It would upset you. It would be scandalous. You'd have this horrible feeling and a ton of questions. Verse 5, it says, now entering the tomb, you got to put yourself in their shoes. They're, they're terrified. They're trying to figure out what's going on. Entering the tomb, ducking their head under, they saw a young man sitting on the right side dressed in a white robe. And we know this is a heavenly messenger, like an angel. And it says that they were alarmed, like no kidding, right? Jesus is gone. He's missing. This angel boy's right before them. Verse 6, and he, this messenger, said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. He's not here. This angel says to them, he says, look, I know who you're looking for. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene. You're looking for the crucified one. And then the moment we're all waiting for, he gives them the good news. He says, he is gone. He is risen. This is the good news of resurrection. Christ is risen. And if Jesus rose, if this happened, then all that he said just is confirmed, right? The resurrection changes everything. If he rose, then all that he said about who he is, all that he claimed about what he came to do is confirmed and true. These women disciples, they were there during Jesus' journeys from Galilee to Jerusalem where he was crucified on a cross and buried. These women, they heard his teachings on the kingdom they heard about what kind of savior he came to be. It's all coming together now for them at this very moment. We need to understand that this event, this resurrection in light of everything else changes everything. We need to look at this event, the resurrection, in light of everything else that was written about Jesus in the gospel of Mark. What did it tell us? The Gospel of Mark tells us in Mark 1, right out the gate, we're told that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Son of God. Now, Christ literally means anointed one or chosen one. 
In other words, he's the one chosen by God to defeat evil, sin, and death, to rescue his people and to bring in, to usher in his perfect kingdom. Like this idea of the chosen one is so embedded in the human psyche that many of our greatest epics in literature and in Hollywood have some form of chosen one that comes in to resolve the plot, right? Narnia has the Pevensies. Middle Earth has Frodo. If you've seen the Lego movie, they have the special. And actual history has Jesus. History has Jesus. What was this Christ, Jesus Christ, this anointed one? What was he chosen? What was he sent to do? We learn in the Gospel of Mark that he was sent by God the Father into our sin-stained world, a world that has fallen away from its original purpose and design. And if you've ever had this, this thought, I know every single person in this room has had this thought, things are not what they should be, right? How many of you have ever had that thought? You look at the world, you look at your relationships, maybe you're looking in the mirror, at some point in your life, you've said things are not what they should be. And you'd be right. If you look at death, if you look at disease, if you look at the problems with humanity, and if you've ever said something has gone wrong, something has gone horribly wrong, you would be right. The Bible calls that the effects of sin on our world, and that is why Jesus came. I love my, my, I love my skeptic friends, my agnostic and atheist friends, and when we get in these engage in these, uh, you know, just uh, 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 charitable discussions, we'll call them, right? Like, we're, sometimes like they'll, they'll ask, like, well, you know, if you really believe in God, if you really believe in Jesus, if he's really so great, then why is the world so crappy? Right? Why is it so just in the dumps? Why is it such a blank hole? Right? They'll ask me. Where, where, why doesn't God do anything? Where is he? To which I always respond, that's the point of Jesus. Right? That's the point of Jesus. He came to undo all that. He came as the chosen one, as the anointed one, to resolve the plot of human history. Instead of leaving the world broken and hopeless when we couldn't help ourselves, God literally put skin in the game, put on flesh in the person of Jesus to live a real human existence perfectly and to die a painful and shameful human death on the cross in our place for our sins. For the joy of his people and the glory of his name. He's making all things new. That's the point of Jesus. That's the point of his life. That's the point of his death. That is the point of the main event, his resurrection. The resurrection says and tells us that that payment Jesus paid on the cross, that that went through. That it was accepted. That is the message Mark has for us in the Gospel of Mark, and especially here in Mark 16. He wants us to know, for you and for the kingdom, Jesus died, but now he's risen. 
That's the gospel. That's the gospel. We sang earlier, God with us, God for us. That's the gospel. Gospel literally means good news. It's not good advice. If you walked into here this morning thinking that Christianity is about how to be a good person and how to live a good life, then you're looking at it wrong. That's more like American cultural Christianity and it's foreign to the scriptures. The gospel is good news. It's an announcement. It's a proclamation. It's a declaration. It's good news about what God has done in Jesus Christ for sinners, for me, for you, for the world to make it new. We just get to trust and rest and have faith in that. You see, Christianity is not about our performance. It's the good news of Jesus' performance. That's why the Bible says we're justified by faith alone. We don't have to work our way up into God's kingdom. He came down to get us, to adopt us, to woo us back. Notice now, the story, though, doesn't end there. You see, followers of Jesus... Don't stick around and marvel at this empty tomb. They're sent into the world with a mission. And that leads us to our third and final point, that the resurrection gives us a hope that now sends us. Read verse 7 with me. The messenger is still speaking, and he tells these women, but go. He says, Jesus has risen. He's not here, but now go. Go. He sends them. Go. Tell his disciples. What does he tell them to go and do? What does he send them to do? To tell. Tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you'll see him just as he told you. The messenger says, Jesus is on the move. Tell the other disciples, he says, the empty tomb is not a memorial that you're still supposed to just like sit at. The empty tomb is a mission that we're sent on. It's an empowered mission with Jesus. It's an empowered mission. The messenger says, look, Jesus has gone ahead of you. You're not alone in this. You go meet him there, right? I'm not telling you to go yourself. You go meet him there. He's gone ahead. It's an empowered mission. The women in this passage were empowered in their dignity. You see, these women, like all women back then, and unfortunately many women today, were marginalized and ignored to the point where in the first century Near East, their testimony wasn't admissible in a court of law, right? How sexist is that? That's what historians have studied and called jacked up, right? That's what that is. Yet Jesus, he shows his love for women and their role in the world that he created as he's making all things new by letting women be the first ones who discover the empty tomb. And here in verse 7, Jesus empowers them with a new identity. The resurrection gave them dignity, gave them a purpose and a mission and a message to run with, to tell the other disciples. The messenger says, you, you three women, you take this good. Good news. 
And you bring it to the disciples. You bring it to these other male disciples who ditched Jesus in his final hour. You go find them. They're mourning. They're not here. You came to bring the spices and the perfume. You go tell them the good news. The disciples who would receive this news, they're also empowered in the midst of their pain and suffering. Where are the disciples right now that the women are going to go out and see? We know from other gospel accounts that the disciples, they're they're in their homes, they're mourning. They're grieving in pain. And in Mark 16, we see that Jesus empowers them with hope, even in the face of death. Even in the face of his death that he's mourning, Jesus empowers them with hope. The angel says to the women, go tell the disciples that Jesus is risen. Tell them. You see, the resurrection comforted these disciples with their pain, comforted them with the good news that even death, which for all of us is the worst thing, is not the last thing. Death, which is often the worst thing, is not the last thing. So the disciples are empowered by the resurrection in their pain. I also want you to see now how Peter was empowered in his shame. Peter was empowered in his shame. Notice that the messenger says to Mary, go tell the disciples and Peter. You catch that? If you grow up in the church, you're probably thinking like, I thought Peter was like one of the disciples, right? Like, Peter's mentioned by name. Why? Why did he get singled out like that? It's because he's the guy who swore to Jesus. He said, over my dead body, that he would never deny Jesus, never. And Jesus was like, you know what, bro? Before the alarm goes off in the morning, you're going to do it three times. And Peter's like, no, not true, not going to happen. Sure enough, when Jesus gets arrested and people approach Peter and they're like, you look like you're from Galilee. Aren't you one of this Jesus guy that just got arrested? Aren't you one of his boys? Aren't you one of... One of his guys? And Peter says, no, like, not me, right? They asked him again, like, hey, I'm pretty sure. I mean, I, I saw you with him. Aren't you one of those guys? He's like, no, not me. And then the third person approaches him, asks him the same question. He just, like, flips out. He starts, like, mumbling gibberish and, like, runs and, 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 and just, like, kind of proverbially, like, cusses this person out. He's like, no, like, I'm, I'm, I'm not... I'm not one of his followers. That's not true. And at that moment, when the rooster crowed, Peter runs away and cries, the Bible says, bitterly. He cries bitterly. His Jesus, his rabbi, his teacher, his Lord, who he'd followed day after day, spent almost every waking hour with him, slept by his side, watched him perform miracles, heard the teaching of his kingdom. But under pressure, seeing Jesus get arrested, he's like, I'm not with him. Jesus called him. Peter said, over my dead body, that will never happen. Jesus called it, and yet it did happen. And so Peter runs away and cries bitterly. What does Jesus do after the resurrection? He gives the messenger a message. 
to give to the women, to give to Peter. He sends Peter a message. Come, I want to be with you, brother. I want to be with you. You see, in the resurrection, we see that Jesus pursued Peter with grace. The resurrection summoned him in forgiveness and freed him from the guilt of his past. How many of us need good news like that this morning? Feeling like the women, where we just feel like we have no value or dignity, and the resurrection gives us dignity, a mission, and a purpose. Feeling like the disciples experiencing pain and suffering, throwing your hands up, why is this happening to me? In the resurrection, Jesus meets us in our pain and suffering. Shows that he came to reverse the power of death, which confirms to us that he can reverse all the other powers of, of evil and darkness. Or maybe you're just in shame and feeling shame and guilt. And the resurrection shows us that there's grace for you. You see, if you let the resurrection surprise you, and challenge your worldview, your understanding of the world, your place in the world, and how Jesus makes sense of it all. And if you see how the resurrection saves you, how it humbles your pride and melts your heart and draws you back to God, then you'll also see that the resurrection sends you. Sends you with a purpose and a mission that will totally reshape the way you live in this world. You'll begin to live with deep hope which pours out in a life lived for the glory of God and the good of others in all that you do. The angel says, go tell everyone about this. He tells them, go tell the disciples, go tell Peter, tell everyone. Why tell everyone? Why tell everyone? Because Jesus is the hope that the world longs for. He's the hope that the world needs. Even the most hard-hearted skeptic among us has to admit that this world is not enough. It's like we're hardwired by our creator to know that there's got to be something beyond this. There's got to be more. The resurrection is proof that Jesus brings that thing to us. This surprising, the saving resurrection of Jesus is the song that we've all longed to hear. It's the chapter that we've all longed to be written. And it has been written. It has happened. The Christ has been crucified, but now is risen. And now, empowered by the Spirit of God, we can be ambassadors of that resurrection hope in a world that desperately needs it. N.T. Wright, Bible scholar in the UK, he puts it this way. I love the way he words this. He says, the resurrection completes the inauguration of God's kingdom. All throughout the Gospel of Mark, we've been hearing Jesus talking about the kingdom of light coming in to push back the darkness. Wright says the resurrection completes the inauguration of that kingdom. It is the decisive event demonstrating that God's kingdom really has been launched on earth as it is in heaven. The message of Easter is that God's new world 
has been unveiled in Jesus Christ, and you're now invited to belong to it. Amen? That is good news. That is hope. That's what it means to place your hope in the resurrection. You're surprised by its reality. You're saved by its power. And you're sensed with a purpose and a mission to participate with God in his mission in the world. Maybe you came there this morning and you're like, man, you maybe walked in here and you're just like, man, man I, I, I want in on that. That sounds compelling. But you really have no idea what I've done. I'm just ashamed of so much. Don't miss the good news that we read. You can't earn salvation. You can only receive it. Jesus says he didn't didn't come uh, to to save the, the, the righteous, but the sick, but sinners. You can only receive his grace. And the resurrection is evidence that what Jesus did on the cross by taking on our sins and absorbing God's wrath in our place, the resurrection confirms that that was enough. And now for those who repent and believe, there is now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. None. Maybe you're here this morning as a believer in Christ, but but you sort of needed to be surprised again by how good the resurrection really is. That because Jesus is alive, you know God has saved you to himself and set you apart for the great mission of pushing back what is dark in the world. You get now, you're free now, you're liberated now to be an instrument of God's grace as Jesus continues his work of renewing all things. That's what we're celebrating. That Jesus came from the throne of God on high to a humble, small manger in a small town to live and die in our place, to rise from the grave, defeating evil, sin, and death, purchasing our souls, adopting us into his family, writing us into his story, and securing for us, securing for us a hope that is deep, a hope that lasts, a hope that transcends our circumstances and our dreams, a hope that changes everything. That's what the resurrection brings us. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.